Amen. Lord, we can't imagine what life would be like without your love and your grace and your mercy. Lord, we ask tonight as we go to your word, your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts. Uh, We thank you for your word. We thank you that we're all here tonight by divine appointment. And Lord, we just ask that truly would be a time of of hearing from your spirit, Lord, and then a time of iron sharpening iron as we would minister one to another afterward. And so, Lord, we just come humble and broken and desperate before you, asking that you would minister to us now. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. Great to see you. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 1. Start a new book tonight in the Old Testament, picking up where we left off about a year ago when we went over to Genesis. And, and understand, too, that in the, uh, you know, when these books were originally written, First and Second Samuel were really one book. It wasn't until they were translated into Greek that they separated these two books. And because of that, I'm going to take the first 10 minutes or so and just kind of give an overview of First Samuel to really give us context, because it was about a year ago or so that we left First Samuel and went to Genesis. And so, again, context is so key for us to really have understanding. Okay, so we're going to take a few moments to do that. And then we'll get into chapter 1 of 2 Samuel. So the books of Samuel, First and Second Samuel, they bridge the gap between Judges and the Kings. And if you'll remember how Judges ended, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Very wicked and very perverse time. In the midst of that time, there's a bridge of time between the time of the Judges to the time of the Kings. And that's what we see in First and Second Samuel. Both uh, historically and doctrinally, this is one of the richest books. These are the two of the richest books in the Old Testament. Uh, One of my favorite books as a pastor to look at because there's so many character studies in 1 and 2 Samuel. So many uh, young people on fire for God. When I was a youth pastor and I'd be asked to speak at a conference, I would almost always pick something out of 1 or 2 Samuel because there are so many examples of godly young people. Uh, The author of the two books is unknown, but the Holy Spirit wrote it. Amen. Many believe Samuel wrote it up until his death, and then Nathan and Gad potentially finished the book. The main characters of 1 Samuel. Samuel was the first judge and the first great prophet, and he exposed the depravity of the priesthood, and he anointed the first king. If you remember at the beginning of the book, a woman by the name of Hannah goes to worship the Lord, and she's desperate to have a child, and she cries out to God, and Eli comes out and hears her praying, and he thinks that she's drunk, because... Prayer was so, you know, few and far between in those days. Fervent prayer was not something that was usual. And so when when the high priest heard it, he thought she was drunk. Uh, She said, you know what, God, if you'll give me a child, I'll give him back to you. God honored that prayer, gave, gave her a son by the name of Samuel. Samuel then was put into the care, after he was weaned, of Eli, this ungodly high priest. And what was most ungodly about him was really that he just would not take care of his boys. He had Hophni and Phinehas who were going into the temple and they were, you know, desecrating the temple and they were bringing women there and it was just a disaster. And so these young men, he would not say anything to his boys and God wakes up Samuel and Samuel is told to tell this, you know, this man, this priest that God's judgment is coming upon him. You've been found wanting by God. You're going to be judged. Here's what's going to happen. And sure enough, his boys went out into battle. They took the ark with them, and the ark was taken captive by the Philistines, and they were struck down dead. And when Eli heard the word that his boys had died, he fell over backward, and he died. 
Well, not right around that time, not long after that time, Samuel continues to grow and he's walking with God. Samuel, in a lot of ways, is a type of the Lord in that he was a prophet, a priest, you know, at the same time. You don't see very often that there are those who are both prophets and priests, and he was both. And so he was a type as a prophet, a priest, and also a judge, and he anoints the king, but the first king anointed over Israel, if you will recall, came into being because the people cried out for a king. At the time, they already had a king. Who was the king? No, before that, God. Amen? They had a king. God was their king, and then they said, you know what? We want a king because everyone else around us has a king. We want to be like the world. And so they cried out for a king, and Saul, when he came forward, he looked pretty good because he was head and shoulders above everybody else. It says he was the best-looking person on the planet. That's a Pastor Day paraphrase, but it says he was the best-looking. He was striking in his looks. So he was tall, he was big, and he was good-looking. Boy, that sounds like somebody that people would want to run for president today, right? And so he's exactly what they wanted. But sadly, they were warned, if you'd make this guy king, here's what's going to happen. He's going to enslave you. He's going to enslave your children. He's going to bring harm upon you. He's going to take your stuff from you. And before it's over, you're going to wish he wasn't king. You're actually going to cry out and say, please, remove him as our king. And then you know what they said? Give us a king anyway. Here's why. God said something. They didn't really believe it. They wanted what they wanted right now, regardless of the future consequences. Doesn't that sound like something we've all struggled with? Amen? Give me what I want now. I'll worry about the consequences later. Well, the consequences came. And Saul started off very humble. He started, matter of fact, when they went to introduce him as king, he was hiding in the equipment. He was a humble guy. But you know what happens with success sometimes if we think that we are the reasons that we're successful, we can get puffed up and prideful. And that's what happened with King Saul. He started to become a prideful man. And then he went out into battle, and we're going to touch on this chapter later, but when you get to chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, he's sent out into battle and he's told to wipe out the Amalekites completely. And we'll go more into depth, but instead what does he do? He brings back the king of the Amalekites and all the spoils with him. He disobeys God. And that was the beginning of the end for Saul, because he had started to do what he wanted instead of what God told him to do. And you can't have that in a man who's the leader of God's people. And so, get to chapter, a few more chapters later, and, and in the meantime, David gets anointed as the first king of Israel. And what a contrast between Saul and David. Saul outwardly had everything, and David outwardly, he was so, such a runt, little ruddy guy, that when Samuel was sent to his, to his uh, hometown, Bethlehem, to the house of Jesse, Bethlehem, kind of key, and he sent to Bethlehem, to the house of Jesse, to find the one to be anointed king. And Jesse brings out his sons, and the older ones go by, and, the older, and, and Samuel keeps thinking, oh man, look at this guy, he's got to be the one. The Lord says, no, it's not him. Well, this guy's got to be the one. They're all big and strapping young men. Finally, he says to Jesse, do you have any more boys? David was such a run, he didn't even bring him in for this. He said, you know what, he's out in the field, but you know, he's just a kid. And they go out and they bring David in, and God, a verse that you all should memorize, God says to Samuel, you know, do not see his man, see his man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. This is my guy. This is my guy, not because he's big and strong, but he's my guy because he loves me and he's walking with me. You got to see that David's time as a shepherd was a blessing because it looks like a, a low job, looks like a job of no value. But you know what God was doing with Samuel all the time, or excuse me, with David all the time? He was alone and we find out it's during that time he was alone, he became a great worshiper of God. 
You go to the Psalms, and who wrote most of them? David. Where did he learn to have that intimate worship relationship? It was his quiet time alone as he was a shepherd. But he also learned to be a man of great faith when no one was watching because he fought lions and bears and laid down his life to save sheep when nobody else even knew that he was doing that. You know what? Character is revealed by what you do when no one is watching. And David was a great man of godly character. And so David, because he has this godly character and he's filled with the Holy Spirit, unlike King Saul, there becomes a time when you get to chapter 17 where we see the, this guy Goliath, who you're all familiar with. And Goliath is there and he would march down in the valley of Elah and he would cry out and, and dare the people, mock the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God mock the God of Israel and say, I defy the armies of Israel. You'll send down your champion and I'll fight you. And every time it happened, everybody would cower. And you got to understand, who was their king at the time? Who was the big guy? Who was the good-looking guy? Who was supposed to be the great warrior? Where well, was King Saul? But prior to that, Samuel already told him, your king has been removed from you and is going to be given to somebody else. And Saul, I believe, was absolutely convinced, I go down and fight that guy, this is going to be God's judgment. He's bigger than me, and he'll tear me up, and I'm not going to give the chance for that. And so instead he said, hey, if anybody else will fight him, I'll give you my daughter as a wife. And everybody was just shaking. And so David gets sent out to see his brothers and what they're up to. Go check on your brothers, David. Jesse says, he's still, he's anointed king of Israel. He's still home taking care of dad and watching the sheep. Humble man. He goes, and when he gets there, and he hears Goliath one time. This has been happening 40 days and nights. Number of testing in scripture. He hears him one time, and David says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that comes against my God? Everybody else saw 11 foot, 750 pounds. David saw a wimpy man coming against Almighty God. Bad plan. And you know what happened? When David got there, the Holy Spirit entered the camp, and that's why everything changed. You know the story? David went down. They tried to put armor on him. Remember Saul, you know, Saul, who's twice his size, tries to put armor on him, and David can't carry it. I mean, you know, big old helmet, can you imagine? He's, you know, like a little kid wearing his parents, you know, his dad's suit. And he couldn't do it. And he said, you know what, I'm not going to wear this. I'm going to take the sling. Why? Because that's what he had learned to protect the sheep with. He had been faithful in that, those smaller things, and now God's going to use him in the greater things. He'd been faithful when nobody was watching, and now God's going to use him mightily when everyone is watching. And it usually happens in that order. God will use a man of great character to give him a godly reputation, not the other way around. And so David goes out, he slays Goliath, and for a while Saul loves this because he begins to elevate David. He makes him commander over his armies, and David goes out and he's a mighty warrior. This guy was, may have not been great in stature, but he was a mighty man of God. And he went out and he was used mightily by the Lord, so much so that the women began to sing songs about David. Saul is slayed as thousands, but David is tens of thousands. Now a humble man would say, hey, praise God that he's a faithful man. We need him on our side. I'm glad he's slaying our enemies. Instead, Saul got envious. And as he got envious, he got to the point where he became angry. And then we know the story where he starts throwing spears at David. And then the passion and the priority of his life becomes, I've got to kill that kid. Why? Because God has said, through Samuel, that I'm going to be replaced by somebody else. This must be the guy. Let me kill him, lest he take my position. Saul turns David's life that up to this point had been a blessing and been fruitful. And David turns from a favored son with a fruitful life to a man who is fleeing for his life. 
For the next 10 years, David is running like a wild animal being hunted by a hunter. He lives in caves. He flees, and the only guys he's got with him, they're called David's mighty men, but they're those who are in debt. Their lives were a mess. They had nowhere else to go, and this is David's group of guys. And so David begins to disciple these guys, and there comes a point where we see the character of David, and and there's a great depiction of it up in the children's ministry. If you get a chance, go up there and look at it. You get to Genesis 24, and in the cave in Gedi, David and his guys are hiding. So it's a big cave, up to 600 guys with him, so it was a big cave. And they're hiding in the cave. Those of you who've been with us to Israel, you've been to En Gedi. It's a beautiful spot. It's an oasis in the desert. No doubt it makes absolute sense that David would hang out there. He needed water as he was running from Saul. Well, Saul comes, and not to be crass, but he comes to relieve himself at the very front, at the mouth of the cave where these guys are in there. And all the guys say, look, David, God has delivered Saul into your hands. Look at him. He's defenseless as he's going to get. Go up and stick him, right? Go, go, go stab. You know, as soon as you kill him, guess what? We'll, you'll be king, and then we can be your guys. You know, we can be generals and commanders. This is great. Look what God has done. And David could have in his mind legitimized. He could have said, you know, I am the anointed, and he's not so much anointed, and he's been outside of God's will, and he's not honoring the Lord. Maybe it is time for me to take this into my hands. Can I tell you something? It's never time for you to take it into your hands. Always leave it in God's hands. Amen? And so instead of killing him, he goes up and he just takes a little piece off his garment. And as soon as he does, David is convicted. He's convicted that he would even cut the hem off the garment of the one who God has has anointed as king. Now, He's an ungodly king, but he's still king for the time being. God hasn't made David king yet. Guys, no matter who is in power, we need to pray for them and respect them. Now, if they tell us to do something outside of God's will, we don't honor that. Amen? But we still pray for them. Pray for our president. Pray for him. Amen? Pray for the city and the county. We pray for them. So David, you know, you understand something, that the length of your hem determined, had, you know, had a way of pointing to your position and your level of authority. And by cutting, it was almost like, you know, cutting away part of his authority. And David was gripped and grieved by that. And it just shows the difference. Saul wants to kill him because he's God's man. And David won't touch Saul because he's God's man for the moment. David had a different perspective, an eternal one. So we're seeing these different characters in this in 1 Samuel. You know, there's so many great pictures that we can see, be it from Hannah or Samuel or, or you know, David or Saul. We see those who are walking with God and those who are not. And that brings us to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel, one last portion I want to point out is Jonathan. Jonathan was a godly young man, and a godly young man in so many ways because he would have been next in line to be king, but he recognized God's hand on David, and he said, you know what? I'm going to give you my robe. You're going to be the one who's going to be king, not me, when my father dies. Matter of fact, Jonathan stands up for David. He helps David escape on several occasions. Jonathan was a godly man. Now, when we get to 2 Samuel, we're going to go from all of those characters to the focus is mainly going to be on David from this point forward. And we're going to see three different divisions in 2 Samuel. We're going to see David's uh, triumphs, first 10 chapters. Chapter 11, we're going to see David's transgression when he he falls into sexual sin and also murder. 
because he stayed behind while his guys were out fighting. And then finally, we're going to see the trouble that results from it in the last third of the book. Now, David is a man of God's own heart. And at the same time, we see David is far from perfect. And I praise God that in his word, he does not hide the frailties of its heroes. Because if he did, all of us would just feel like we could just throw it in and forget it. But praise God that we can see in the word of God that God uses imperfect people. And aren't you glad? Amen. Now, why is it Saul had made some mistakes and David had not? Why is it that Saul, it says, he regretted making him king, but David is a man for God's own heart, when you could point at some of David's sins and say they're as bad or maybe even worse in some cases? Why is it? What is the difference between the two men? Here it is. When Saul was confronted with his sin, he remained rebellious and refused to repent. When David was confronted with his sin, he was broken and repentant before Almighty God. Guys, that's a word for us tonight. When we are convicted about sin, we can be like Saul, remain in rebellion and refuse to repent, or we can be like David, a man after God's own heart, who's broken before God and and gets right with him. So that brings us to tonight's text. And again, A book of transitions from Eli to Samuel, from Samuel to Saul, and now it's going to move from Saul to David. And in this time of looking at David, we're going to see just every aspect of this this godly man's character, and again, that it's not always perfect. Now, this book will cover about 40 years. During that time, David's going to be reigning over Judah alone for the first seven and a half or so. And then the final 33, he'll be reigning over Judah and Israel together. And we're going to see him reigning for 40 years. And we're going to see him have times where he is doing well and others where he's blowing it. Just by a way of note as to timing, he's David at this point is right in the middle, just about between Abraham and Jesus. Abraham, about 2000 BC. David, we're getting close now to about 1000 BC. And then we're going to lead to Jesus Christ. And of course, we know that it's through the line of David that the Messiah would one day come. That's why Bethlehem is called, you know, it's the city of David. And speaking of the Messiah, they often called him the son of David. So over the next several months, we're going to be focusing on the life of David. And there's so much we can learn from every aspect of his life. We're going to learn from his successes. We can also learn from his failures as well. So we come to chapter to, to Second Samuel, where we left off. David actually at this point wasn't doing all that great. Remember that for a moment in time, he he was in a position where he was so worn out from running from Saul that he actually went for a little while and aligned himself with the Philistines. You guys remember that? And what's amazing about that, Goliath was a what? A Philistine. So David slayed Goliath, and then after some persecution, 10 years or so later, he's actually encamped with the Philistines, and the Philistines believe that he is now on their side, and he is going to go out and fight with them. Now, depending on who you listen to, either David never meant to do that, or God intervened, but in either case, as they went out to battle, God changes the heart of the Philistine king, doesn't let him go with them. David goes out and fights the Amalekites instead, who are also enemies of Israel, and the Philistines are out fighting Israel, and that's kind of where we came to the end of 1 Samuel. At the last chapter, you see the death of Saul, but it's going to be replayed in this chapter. So Saul dies. Now Saul, prior to his death, got really far away from God. Remember, he consulted a witch at Endor. 
God didn't, he didn't get what he wanted from the prophet, so he went to a witch for an answer instead. You know, if the word of God doesn't give you the answer you want, don't call 1-900-PSYCHIC, amen? Don't run down to the you know, local person, the, whatever. Don't run to the, to the counselor that will give you the counsel you want. Let's give the counsel that God wants us to hear, amen? And too often we can do that. You, you know, if you look long enough and pay enough, you'll find somebody who'll tell you exactly what you want to hear. You might even find him in the church. Be careful, amen? Make the word of God the authority. So, we come to 2 Samuel. David is still on the run. He's still outside. Uh, Saul is off fighting the Philistines. He has just died. It's going to be recapped in this chapter. And David is now going to be confronted with the fact that finally he has an opportunity to be what he was anointed to be. Well, I struggle with the title of the message tonight. But I titled the message, A Godly Response to Those Who Persecute You. A Godly Man's Response to Those Who Persecute Him, in that case. Now, first of all, when you're persecuted by people, the typical response for us is to want vengeance. The typical response for us is to get even. That's the fleshly response. But a godly, per, a godly man, a godly woman, does not delight in the death of those who persecute him. He does not take attacks on the Lord's anointed lightly, and he focuses on godly attributes of others, not their shortcomings. If you're walking with the Lord, you're not going to rejoice when those who persecute you fall. You're not going to rejoice. Why? Because your heart is to see them saved. Your heart is to see them restored to God. Second of all, in the midst of persecution, while you show grace to those who persecute you, you should not take lightly those who attack the Lord's anointed. You know, there are those who are called by God and gifted by God, and the enemy is going to come against them. And in the midst of that, as we're going to see in tonight's text, that's one area where David shows grace, grace, grace. There's one area where he calls out for righteous judgment, and that's when an Amalekite comes against a man who's been anointed by God. And then finally, and you know, this convicted me, he focuses on the godly attributes of others, not their shortcomings. Do we all need to hear that tonight? Amen. Isn't it easy to look at somebody and find where they're failing instead of encourage them at where they're doing well? And again, he's going to do this with a man that's hard to believe he's, that he does this at all. So let's get to 2 Samuel. Speaking of the response of a godly man of character to, to those who persecute him, he does not delight in the death of those who persecute him. Someone who is on fire for God, someone who is walking with the Lord, someone who is spiritually mature is not going to rejoice when somebody per, who, who persecutes him dies, or even when the most ungodly person they know dies. We should not rejoice when somebody who is a Muslim leader dies. Amen? We should not rejoice when uh, the, somebody from the Taliban dies. Why? Here's why. Because our heart should be to see them born again. Our heart should be to see them saved. Now, God, God's timing is perfect, and God can take them when he wants to, but we're not to rejoice in the death of others. We're not to rejoice in finding out that someone has been sent to an eternity separated from Almighty God. That should cause us to weep, not to rejoice. So, here we go in verse 1. It says, Now it came to pass, after the death of Saul, now it came to pass means literally, it's just continuing where 1 Samuel ended. It's a matter of days. That's why this really should just be one book. It's broken it more to address it easier. Now it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David stayed two days in Ziklag. Now, David returns to Ziklag after he'd gone out and fought the Amalekites. Israel 
is down fighting against the Philistines. And as we're about to find out, they get tore up. David, with his men, is off fighting the Amalekites, and they tear the Amalekites up. In the meantime, he's been living in Ziklag. Ziklag is within the Philistine territory. So David is still living amongst the territories of the very enemy that the children of Israel were fighting against. But at this point, the city, because of its fight with the Amalekites, has been turned to rubble. It's, it's a place in ashes, in a sense. David is there, and as he is there, he's, he's at home in this place of smoldering ashes, and a word comes to him. Verse 2, on the third day, he's been there a couple days, on the third day back in Ziklag, behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. So it was when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. Into the city comes a young man who looks as weathered as a city. His clothes are torn. He's got dirt or dust on his head. He comes from the battle between Israel and the Philistines with news of the battle. Now to David, this is very important. Somebody has just come in. You know, they didn't have, uh, you know, GPS. They didn't have, you know, a telephone. He didn't, you know, he didn't have the news wire. He didn't have the latest on what was happening. So he has no idea what's been happening in the battle between the Philistines and the children of Israel. And so this Young man comes into the camp, he's disheveled, you can tell he's been in the midst of the battle somehow, and as he comes in, he has news of the battle, and David is no doubt anxious to hear what this young man has to say. And David said to him, where have you come from? So he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. Then David said, how did the matter go? Please tell me. Here's David's heart, he's eagerly awaiting the word of the battle's outcome. You got to remember, though he's not the acting king, he is the anointed king. And these are his people. And even though he's gotten confused at times, and he went and aligned himself with the Philistines for a moment, he's still the king of Israel. And his heart, of course, is for his people. So what happened? Tell me what happened. Please tell me. Verse 4, and he answered, the people have fled from the battle. Many of the people are fallen and dead. And Saul and Jonathan his son are dead also. Now, the, man, the young man bringing this news thinks that he's bringing great news. We're going to find out in a moment. He thinks that he's bringing such great news that he's, they might throw a parade for him. At the very least, a feast, and certainly there's going to be some rewards coming. Because for 10 long years, what has David been doing? Running from Saul. And the word now comes to him that this man, who has made his life all but a living hell in a lot of ways, chasing him everywhere, never a day's rest, always fearful for his life. He had taken a wife away from him. Remember that? He slayed Goliath. He gave him his daughter. After he gave him his daughter... He gave his, took his daughter, Michael, and gave his daughter to somebody else. This man has thrown spears at him. This man has chased him. This man has, has you know, ruined his reputation, lied about him, uh, you know, attacked him repeatedly. He removed him from being in the place where his family and his friends and his people were. He was living in caves for 10 years. And you know what? You would think hearing that that guy is dead would be a time for a party. About time. I've been waiting. You might even be able to try to say it was an answer to prayer. But instead, David, verse 5, said to the young man, How do you know 
that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead. I mean, how, did you hear about it? Were you going by the camp and somebody told you? How do you know for sure that this is true? How do you know? David didn't want to believe the news. You would think that he would be hopeful, but instead he was hopeful that it wasn't true. Verse 6. Then the young man who told him said, As I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on his spear. And indeed the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. Now what's happening is, young man tells David, Look, it's not hearsay. I'm not just telling you something somebody else told me. I actually saw Saul. I saw him. I was going through Mount Gilboa. I saw him leaning on his sword or his spear. What does that mean? He's in a place where we know from, the, from 1 Samuel 31, he attempted suicide. Now, either he attempted suicide and he didn't die, and this guy's telling the truth, or he did die, and this guy's making up a story that he thinks will ingratiate himself to David. In either case, he comes by, he sees Saul there, and he either finishes him off, or he sees him dead, and he takes his crown and his bracelet to bring it to David, which proves not only that Saul's dead, but was this young man's way of saying, hey, this crown doesn't belong to Saul anymore, you're the rightful king, this is yours now. And so this young man brings this report to David and tells him, I saw him. Verse 7, now when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? So I answered him, I am an Amalekite. Now we're going to talk about this in depth in a few minutes because this is really a key point of this entire text, but we're going to talk about this Amalekite man later. But make note of the fact that this man is an Amalekite. Verse 9, he said to me again, please stand over me and kill me. For anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. You can see him kind of painting this story for David. Hey, David, here's what happened. Whether it's true or not, we don't know for sure. But he shows up and he says, Saul was laying there. He was about to die. The enemy was closing in on him. He didn't want to be tortured. I was doing the merciful thing. I ended his life. And here's his crown. And here's his bracelet. And guess what? He's never going to mess with you again. You ought to be rejoicing. You ought to be excited to hear that. Verse 10. So I stood over him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. This is the ultimate proof that he's dead because a king would not give up his crown or his bracelet unless someone had slain him. This young Amalekite anticipates this news is going to bring great joy to David. He thinks that right about this point, David's going to throw his fists up in the air. And, you know, I don't know what they did back then. They didn't high five, but something. Give him a hug or something. And say, oh, what wonderful news. Hey, I'm the new king. It's about time, God. This young man thought, he might have thought when he stumbled upon David, or when he stumbled upon Saul, that he had hit the lotto. Look at me. I found the dying or the dead king, and I've got his crown and his bracelet, and he was traveling for some time back to David, and he was probably thinking all the way there, boy, when David sees this, I'm going to be the man. He is going to throw a party. He's going to have a parade for me. This is going to be incredible. I can't wait to tell him. He runs. He's covered in filth. He gets all the way there. He tells David, and guess what? He's not going to really get the uh, response that he thinks. 
Even though this is a man who had thrown spears at him, sought to kill him, taken his wife from him, made him the, the fo- his, his death, his focal point of his existence, Saul death would mean, Saul's death would mean David wouldn't have to run anymore. He would finally be king. This young man again thought for sure, this is going to make David happy and I'm going to be rewarded. Maybe there'll be a great feast. Well, 1 Samuel chapter 4, don't turn there. Let me just quote it for you. You can read it later. Verse 10 reveals that David knew the thoughts and motives of this young man's heart. Because here's what it says. When someone told me, look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought me good news, I arrested him and had him executed in Ziklag, the one who thought I would give him a reward for his news. David saw right through this guy. David knew when he came that this guy was thought he was bringing good news and was looking for a reward. And as we see from that text, we know what's going to happen to him instead. So David throws a party. David has a parade. David has a big feast. No, that's not what happened. Look at verse 11. Therefore, David took hold of his own clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. Saul's death did not produce a fist pump and a celebration, but torn clothes and deep mourning. You know, in, their, in that culture, when you rent your clothes, it was saying, I am so, I'm grieving to the point that I don't have words. I am in such deep mourning, there's not a word in my vocabulary that can describe it to you. So instead of trying to do that, I'm just going to take my clothes and just shred them. And it was an act of just the deepest anguish and mourning over the death of someone that you loved. Now what's interesting is that the 600 men that were with him were watching to see how David would respond. And as soon as David tore his clothes, they all tore their clothes. This is an example of when we live our life out in front of those, be it our children, or be it those that we have some spiritual headship over, they're watching to see how we respond in times of great difficulty. And they're most often going to pattern their response after ours. And it can even be in the workplace, where maybe they're not saved, but they're watching to see how you respond to the economy. They want to see how you respond to difficulty in your life. And guys, if we respond in an ungodly way, we're bringing harm to the gospel of Christ. But if we respond in a way that is godly and honorable before God, don't be surprised when others watch that and want to mimic it. And that's what happens here. These are the same men, many of which were no doubt in the cave, saying, kill him! Get him! You know, they could have said is, why are you tearing your clothes, Dave? Um, we told you to kill him. Now God took care of him for you. Now we get to be, you know, your commanders. This is awesome. That's not what they did. They saw David and they saw how he responded and they followed his example. David is grieving. He tore his clothes and all of his men followed suit. Verse 12. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and Jonathan his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Instead of a celebration and a feast, as Amalekite had expected, there was mourning and fasting. They were so heartbroken, they couldn't eat. They didn't want to eat. They didn't want food. Food was considered a, a time of celebration and comfort. And they said, I, I refuse to be comforted. I am in such deep mourning. Don't comfort me. Don't, don't try to comfort me right now. I just need to grieve. Ever, I've dealt with people like that before. Well, they just need to grieve. And sometimes we just need to be available to them and, and be prepared to love them, but also be ready to allow them to grieve. David's response to all of 
of Saul's hatred and venom was love. This is amazing to me. You know what? This amazes me more than David slaying Goliath. This amazes me more than David going out and killing his tens of thousands. Because I will be honest with you, I think it's easier sometimes to go face a great giant than it is to forgive somebody who's been persecuting us year after year after year after year. Amen? Our fleshly response is, you know, we have to be honest, we might say, good. About time that guy's dead. I'm sick of living in caves. You know what? That guy got what he deserves. I've heard people, I've heard Christians say this. Hell's going to be hot for that guy. You ever heard anybody say that? And you know what? We've, and again, we need to be very, very careful because here's the reality. There before the grace of God goes every single person in this room. Amen? Apart from God's grace, we're this wicked, evil person. Now, Saul's been exposed to the truth, and God's going to deal with Saul. But David says, that's not my job. My job is not to bring the judgment. That's God's job. My job is to love him anyway. And my job is to respect the fact that he is the king and to respect him that he is the one placed in authority. I'll tell you a great book to read if you struggle with submission. Don't read it unless you want your life to change. It's called A Tale of Three Kings. And we went through it when I was... Uh, a youth pastor in San Jose with our senior pastor. And I'll tell you what, it's radical. And examines the life of David and Saul and Absalom. How David was submitted to Saul even though he wasn't worthy of being submitted to, but Absalom would not submit to his father when he was worthy of being submitted to. And you just see the, the outpouring of what happens when a man is willing to submit even when it doesn't make sense. God honors that. Notice, too, he didn't just grieve for Saul, but also for Jonathan. Now, it's far easier to understand that, isn't it? Jonathan, godly man. Jonathan, as we'll see at the end of the chapter, he loved Jonathan like he loved nobody else. This is the best friend he's ever had or ever will have. He loves this guy. This guy's a kindred spirit. He's got the same heart. I'm so blessed to know him. How in the world, from a physical perspective, could David do this? There's no way. His reaction appears to be just the opposite of what you would expect. But the reason he has this reaction is he has an eternal and a godly perspective, not a temporal and a physical one. David is focused not on himself, not what Saul's death would mean for him, but he wept for Saul and for Jonathan and the people of the Lord and the house of Israel that they had been you know, taken by the hands of the ungodly Philistines. Guys, we will change our perspective when we stop thinking about how it impacts us and instead focus on how it impacts God's kingdom. Amen? Instead of being worried about what I've lost or what I don't have or what I missed out on, instead of saying, okay, you know, wait a minute, Lord, what are you doing here? Not why, but what do you want me to learn? Not why is this happening to me, but God, what do you want to do through these circumstances? Lord, help me to have an eternal perspective, not a temporal one. So notice the godly man's response to those who persecute him. He does not delight in the death of those who persecute him. He does not delight in their death. And I, I say safe to say, he doesn't delight in their downfall either. The guy at work's persecuting you and he gets fired. You shouldn't be doing cartwheels down the hallway, though you might want to. Amen? Instead, you ought to think, you know, I need to pray for him. I need to pray for her. God put him in our life for a reason. Second point. And this goes in a little bit different direction, but he takes... They does not take attacks on the Lord's anointed lightly. You know, he recognizes that 
that Saul was God's man and Saul was outside of God's will, so God's going to deal with him. But when he's standing on the sideline and he sees someone attacking God's man, then he's going to say something. Then he's going to step up and say, whoa, where if the man's attacking him, he's silent. But if he's attacking God's man, now he becomes more vocal. And we're going to see that is exactly what David does. Look at verse 13. Then David said to the young man who told him, where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite. Now let's talk about the Amalekites. David had just been in battle with the Amalekites and just slain them. The Amalekites were a pagan and idolatrous people who were enemies of God. In the Bible, the Amalekites are a type or a picture of the flesh. They were descendants of Esau. Jacob was the spiritual brother. Esau was the fleshly one. From Esau came the Amalekites. Now let me tell you a little bit about them, and you won't feel, because people say, why are them poor Amalekites getting picked on? Well, in Deuteronomy 25, it says this. Remember that Amalek, what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt. How he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at the rear. When you were tired and weary, he did not fear God. Therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. That's pretty straightforward. Let me explain to you again what that means. Here's what was happening. The children of Israel had come out of Egypt. They're traveling through the wilderness and no doubt the sick and the weak would be in the back kind of tagging behind. The Amalekites were hiding and going down and ambushing the weak ones who were at the rear and killing them. And so it says, God says in that verse there, I've seen what you have done, Amalek. And you guys remember, Israel, when you go into your land, you're to wipe them off the face of the earth. Now what's interesting, this shows God's grace. Because he didn't kill them immediately, he gave them an opportunity to repent. But before it was over, he was going to wipe them out because of this. The Amalekites are a type of the flesh. Notice that we're most susceptible to the flesh when we're tired and weary. Have you ever noticed that? That when you're tired, your temper gets a little shorter. Your fuse gets a little shorter. When you're tired, you can often, you know, and you're weary, and you've been going through a tough time. Sometimes that's the time when we're most open to temptation. Now, what's interesting, you get to 1 Samuel 15. I told you I mentioned this. God called Samuel, or Samuel called uh, Saul and said to him, God has a plan for you. Here's what you're supposed to do. You're to go out and destroy the Amalekites. Kill every single one of them. Do not bring one back alive. As a matter of fact, kill all the animals, kill all the spoils, bring nothing back with you. And then what happened? Saul went out and he brought back Agag, the king of the Amalekites, with him. And we know that he left other Amalekites alive because this guy wouldn't have been there. And he comes back, and he also has all the sheep and the oxen with him. And then Samuel comes walking in to camp. And he says to Saul, what is this lowing of sheep I hear? You know, what is that? And then, you know, when confronted with sin, you can do one of three things. Make excuses, accuse others, or repent. So what does Saul do? Oh, um, it was the people. The people brought the oxen and the sheep back. And oh, by the way, we brought them back so that we can sacrifice them to the Lord, your God. He made excuses and he pointed to other people. He didn't repent. This is Saul's problem. 
It'd be kind of like you saying, Lord, I stole from my boss so I can tithe more. You know, I, I, I brought these animals back, and he says not the Lord our God, but in a telling statement, the Lord your God. Now, what's interesting about the Amalekites being a typology of the flesh, because when Agag is brought back, in my mind, Pastor Dave's opinion, he's a picture of that one sin you just don't want to let go of. The pet sin, the chief sin, the greatest struggle that you have in your life. Okay, God, I'll give up everything else, but let me just keep this one. And he brings Agag back, he's all chained up, and he marches him through the town. He's very open about the fact that he's got Agag with him. Hey, I won the battle. Yeah, I killed the most of them, but I'm hanging on to this one. Guys, can I say this? We'll continue to sin, but we should never, ever, ever, ever become complacent about our sin. Amen? It should always be something that grips our hearts. And he brings Agag back, and then Samuel comes out. And Agag is brought out before Samuel. And Samuel, by this time, is probably in his late 80s. And he sees Samuel come out, and Agag, you know, the text says he kind of breathes a sigh of relief. Oh, just an old man. Samuel pulls out a sword and cuts Agag up into small pieces. It's in the Bible. Now, why did he do that? Because the king of the flesh cannot survive. And if we're going to put the flesh to death, he uses the sword, which is a type of what? The word of God. If you want to put the flesh to death... You need to be someone who's holding on to God's word. If you're going to have victory over the, tri- the, the temptations and trials of life. But what's interesting, there's one other account where you see the Amalekites that I believe gives us the rest of the answer of how we overcome the flesh. Because in Exodus, you see the picture with Aaron and Hur and Moses. And if you remember the story, the Amalekites come to fight against them. And God tells Moses, as long as you stand up, and hold your hands in the air, you will have victory over the Amalekites. But if your hands fall down, they will run over the top of you. So so Moses goes, and he stands on a rock, and he holds up his hands, and as long as his hands are up, he looks down, and the children of Israel are wiping out the Amalekites. But after some time, his hands grow weary, and his hands start to fall. And as soon as his hands come down, the Amalekites start being victorious. At that point, Aaron and Hur came and sat alongside of him, and it says they held up his hands all day long that they might have the victory, and in holding up his hands, they wiped out the Amalekites. Here's the picture for you spiritually. How do we have victory over the Amalekites? We've seen the sword in the hands of of Samuel. But guess where else? In a place of surrender. Amen? Amen. It's when we're surrendered. This is also a picture of prayer. It's also a picture of worship. Amen? Guys, we're in a place of prayer and worship and surrender to God. That's when we can have victory over the flesh and its temptations. Amen? But not only do we see that, we see something else. That when the hands start to come down, and all our hands come down sometimes, amen? Guess what happens? We need fellowship. We need accountability. The Bible says a three-chord strand is not easily broken. We need those who will come alongside us and hold up our hands all day long that we might have victory over the flesh. Christianity is not for the Lone Ranger. So that story is in Exodus 17. You can go there and look. And so, how do we win the battle against the flesh? We surrender, we pray, we worship, we fellowship, we have accountability, and we spend time in God's Word. 
Watch, watch how much better you do in your walk when you're doing those things. Amen? And so the Amalekites, a type of the flesh. So he told him, kill all the Amalekites. He didn't. And who brings news of his death? An Amalekite. Do you think that's by chance? You have, you're not paying attention to the Bible if you think it's by chance. Amen? Here's the point. If we do not put the flesh to death, the flesh will bring our own demise. Amen? If we continue to dabble with the flesh and play with the flesh and hang out with the flesh and feed the flesh, your flesh will never be satisfied. And don't be surprised before it's over if it brings about your own demise. And now, again, you might be saved. You might have a saved soul in a wasted life. You may miss out on God's highest. That shouldn't be our heart at all. Amen? We should not feed the flesh. The flesh will never be satisfied. Verse 14. So David said to him, How was it that you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? He doesn't say, thanks for killing my arch enemy. Come be my second in command. He says, who do you think you are touching the Lord's anointed? Now, David would not have been able to say that had David not resisted the temptation himself. Amen? Because David had a godly testimony in this area, he could testify to somebody else. David had had numerous opportunities to legitimately defend himself. David refused to reach out and destroy Saul. David knew that since God put Saul on the throne, it was God's job to end his reign. And woe to the one who puts forth his hand to destroy God's anointed. So he says, you have no fear. Who do you think you are? Put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed. Verse 15, And David called one of the young men and said, Go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. Now wait a minute. Doesn't this contrast? He's, he won't touch Saul, but he tells his guys to go kill this Amalekite. Why? Because the word of God had already said, Blot out the Amalekites. Amen? It also had said, You're not to touch the Lord's anointed. Over here, this was God's man who God raised up, and God would bring him down and... David was the warrior that God would use to bring out righteous judgment upon the Amalekites. Verse 16. So David said to him, Your blood is on your own head. Your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. David said to him, The reason that you're in this mess is because of what you've done. There are many factors that might have excused the Amalekite. He could have said, well, Saul was in rebellion and he was hardened against your God and Saul was trying to kill you, David, and Saul was already dying and, and Saul you know, asked me to kill him and it, you know, it could have just been that I discovered his body. You know, Here's the point. God is the only one who can take that man's life. Nobody else. It's not our calling, not our job. It's his calling. It's to be in his hands. None of these excuses mattered and so God brought righteous judgment upon him. A godly response to those who persecute you he does not delight in the death of those who persecute him. He does not take the attacks on the Lord's anointed lightly. And finally, he focuses on godly attributes of others, not their shortcomings. Look what happens as we finish off here. Then David lamented with his lamentation over the soul, over Saul, excuse me, and over Jonathan, his son. And he told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Indeed, it is written in the book of Asher. So David didn't rejoice over Saul's death and the blessings it would, it would bring and the ease it would bring to him. David wrote a song of lamentation. The word lamentation there means a, a wail or a chant at a funeral. It's a cry of deep sorrow. 
So David wasn't just playing a game pretending like he was mourning in front of the Amalekite guy. He really was mourning. And I have to confess, this guy's way more godly than I could. I mean, man, I don't think, I mean, it has to be God for you to be mourning when the guy's been trying to kill you for 10 years, dies. Amen? But he's mourning, and he's mourning to the point that he commanded that the song be taught to all the children of Judah, that it would not just be he and his men who mourn, but all of Israel over the death of Saul and Jonathan. That book of Asher there, it's not a missing book of the Bible. There are no missing books in the Bible. Amen? But it was a, an, an older book of, of Jewish or Hebrew poetry, more than likely. Verse 19. Now notice, as he talks about Saul, how he talks about him. This is amazing to me. The guy who threw spears at him, guy took his wife from him, guy you know, who, who's been attacking him and chasing him like a wild animal for 10 years. How does he talk about him? Dirty dog. No, that's not what he says. Look what he says. The beauty of Israel is slain. The beauty of Israel. In this song, David shows his great love and generosity in his heart towards Saul. And it shows that David didn't kill Saul with a sword or himself. He saw the beauty of Saul. He wanted no one to rejoice over the death of Saul. He wanted everyone to mourn. Look what it says. How the mighty have fallen. He refers to Saul as being mighty. Guys, you've got to remember that in Saul's life, while most of it was a mess, there were times when God used Saul to bring victory to Israel. And David, instead of focusing on all the shortcomings, looks at the time when he was walking with God. And he says, you know what, he was a mighty man. God used him. God used him in a mighty way. What a powerful testimony how David has kept his heart free from bitterness, even when he was greatly wrong and sinned against. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians that love thinks no evil. And 1 Peter says, Above all things have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. David could not do this because of his trust in God and God's power. He knew that God was in charge of his life and that even if it meant Saul would do evil, God would use it for good. He had an eternal perspective. And Lord, help us to have that same heart as David. How the mighty have fallen. We know from Scripture that his fall came long before this. It's when he allowed pride and greed to cause him to harden his heart toward God and his word, and the man got anointed to be king. Verse 20. Tell it in Gath. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. David did not want the word to get back to the Philistines that Saul had been slain, lest they have a party. You know what it reminded me of? I remember after 9-11, they were showing certain places where people were actually celebrating what had happened when we were attacked and how that just you know, caused the, our blood to boil. And here's the heart of David. David's saying, look, I don't want the word to get back to the Philistines that Saul is dead lest they throw a huge party and they celebrate. Don't let the word get back to Gath or to Ashkelon lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. Verse 21, O mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or no rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for the shield of the mighty is cast away there, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. David calls for widespread mourning over the entire nation, from the mountains to the fields, that everyone would be in mourning. Verse 22, From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul 
did not remain empty, return empty, excuse me. David reminds Israel of the victories that Saul had brought to them. Under Saul, they did, again, as I said earlier, know a time of victory. He's saying right there that they remained, that Jonathan remained faithful and that David, or that Saul did not turn back. Verse 24, or 23, excuse me. Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Boy, he is really looking for the best in this guy. Because do you remember there was a time when Saul wanted to kill his own son? Do you remember that? He made a rash oath and said, if anybody eats honey, and then Jonathan reached down and ate some honey, and he was going to kill his own son, and his own people said, Saul, you've lost your mind. Jonathan is a god. Don't mess with Leave him alone. But here he remembers that they were not divided, that they were beloved and pleasant. That in their death they were not divided as well. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. And certainly that was true of Jonathan, but he attributes it to Saul as well. He had been humble and faithful and obedient for a time. Verse 24. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. David reminds the women in Israel of the blessings and safety and prosperity they knew for a time under Saul. Saul was an evil man now, but he wasn't always that way. Let me remind you of how God had used him for a time. Now finally, as we close, David finishes lament by mourning over the dearest and closest friend he would ever know, Jonathan, who recognized God's calling and anointing upon David's life. Look what it says there. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle, Jonathan was slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have, been my, you have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. Now, surpassing the love of women, some people who are perverse in their minds have tried to make this sound like Jonathan and David had some kind of sexual relationship. Homosexuals love to go to that text and point that out to you. Let me tell you what it means. His love from Jonathan was greater than a love that a mother has for her child or that a wife has for a husband. What it means is this is an unconditional love. The best way to describe it in the New Testament would be agape love. It is a love that loves someone outside of himself more than himself. And that's how agape has been described. A mom, if you want to see what love looks like in the world outside of the Lord, the closest thing you can see getting approaching God's love for us is the love a mom has for her child. You talk about sacrificial. You know, I, I think a five foot two woman would stand in front of a two thousand pound bull if she had to, right? Why is that? It's called sacrificial love. And that's the kind of love that Jonathan had for David. Jonathan not only said it, but he showed it because he was willing to lay down his life for David. He stood in front of his father on behalf of David. David would never, ever have another friend like this man. And his heart was tormented. His heart was mourning. His heart was gripped at the loss of his dear, dear brother. David lamented Saul's death. And if you read the text... If you only had this chapter, and you didn't have the rest of 1 Samuel, you would think that Saul was like the greatest guy ever, wouldn't you? You know what? When we talk to people about other people, that's the impression they ought to walk away with. Amen? Not gossip, not tearing people down. When I was a youth pastor, I used to have a saying, I say it at home to my kids still, prayer praise. Can't say something nice? Pray. Can't do either one? Shut it. Amen? <laughs> Prayer or praise. And what we see here is exactly what, 
what David is doing. He, the only thing he has to say about Saul is he's reminded of the times he was godly, and they were few and far between, but that's still what he points to. He still gives honor to God and points to the times of righteousness in this man's life. We are not, according to Scripture, to rejoice at the falling of our enemies. While God's judgment is always righteous and just, He takes no delight when the wicked enter into their eternal judgment. You think God's happy when someone goes to hell? What's the answer? Why in the world would we rejoice if God's not rejoicing? Why in the world should we think, oh, that's wonderful? I, I, I'm going to just be transparent with you as we close. You hear about an abortion doctor dying. There's a party that thinks, am I the only one? Why? Because they're slaughtering babies. Now, here's the point, though. That's not what God have, would have us to think or to feel about that man. Amen? What he's doing is wrong. Pray for him. Love him. Minister to him. Last verse. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. May we, like David, lament when anyone dies. May we, like David, not delight and the death of those, or the fall of those who persecute us. May we not take the attacks on the Lord's anointed lightly. If we hear somebody slamming somebody, may we step in in a loving way. Excuse me. And may we focus on the godly attributes of others, not their shortcomings. Boy, how different would the church be if we did that? Let's focus on, on what we see that's good in the hearts of others instead of trying to pick people apart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you and praise you for just the examples you give us in Scripture. Lord, I thank you for David's example. I know it's, it's brought conviction to my own heart. Lord, that I would try to always see what's best in other people. Lord, that my heart would be to, to speak well of them, not ill. Lord, to at the same time when someone would attack someone who's being used by God, that in a loving and a gracious way that we would intercede. And then, Lord, that we would not rejoice when men have fallen. Lord, instead, we would recognize that everybody faces an eternity separated from you. And that's where we were headed, apart from your grace. Lord, may we never take your grace for granted. May we love and serve you in the way that we live out our lives. Lord, I pray we'd be a reflection of you in the way that we treat others. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, let's stand and close the worship song.